You just missed a home run. I missed out on an incredible deal you were offering at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It just started. You can get beautiful Pella Windows and pay no interest for four years. Visit PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. As we mentioned before, uh, Rebecca Clayfish, Republican candidate for governor. She will be scheduled to join me in the studio at 2.05 this afternoon, and we're going to talk about some of the things that were covered at the debate yesterday and some stuff that wasn't covered with the debate yesterday. also have an invitation out to the Michaels campaign. They have not responded, and um, I'm leaving for our listener trip to Alaska a week from tomorrow. So I, I offered them some time this week, and if they choose to take advantage of it, that's fine. Otherwise, that's how it's going to be. My quick take on the debate, I thought Rebecca Clayfish did a very, very good job, I think, I think she demonstrated that she probably of the three candidates, forget probably, obviously has the, the best grasp of statewide issues and things like that. And if she were elected governor, I think would clearly be the most prepared to take over and run the state um, from day one. Tim Michaels, I thought, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that he hurt himself, but I was a little bit disappointed. I thought he was talking exclusively in sound bites without going into any sort of details. And Timothy Rantham is just Timothy Rantham. Um, you know, you, I guess, you know, everybody needs that crazy uncle to come to the parties every once in a while. You know, the one that talks about how we're going to decertify the 2020 election and how we're going to, I don't know, pull the schools off of the property tax system. And then the question becomes how do you pay for it and all that but in 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 any event i thought it was an interesting debate and i thought rebecca clayfish did well and i don't think tim michaels hurt himself we'll talk to rebecca clayfish in the two o'clock hour of the program all right if you have not seen this i invite you if you if you want to see the actual film of it you can follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Now, over the weekend, Saturday night at Lambeau Field, there was a huge football match of a different kind. You had two of the biggest soccer clubs in the world. Manchester City, which is together with my team, Liverpool, are, are the two prominent teams in the English Premier League, and Bayern Munich, which is the, the top team in Germany. Manchester City and Bayern Munich came to Lambeau Field for a game. Fully sold out, 78,000 people, people actually from all over the world, came to, to see this game. And if you remember back on Saturday, they had all sorts of, there were, unfortunately, they had some rain delays, you had lightning, remember those big storms that we had on Saturday evening that had various things that were postponed and all. But ultimately, they were able to get the match in after a couple of delays. At one point, they had to evacuate Lambeau Field. And by that, I mean they ask people to leave the stands and go inside because there's, there's lightning warnings. So they ask people to go into the concourse. And during one of those breaks, what happens is a guy jumps out on the field uh, wearing nothing but a smile, a shirt, and a pair of shoes. 
and starts running across the, the field. And pretty soon the shirt comes off. So you've got this, this naked guy that's running across the field. Now, if you watch this video, one of the things that's a little bit scary is the fact that he was able to be on the field for as long a- as he was before ultimately security guard comes and tackles him and then all the Brown County people come and they jump on him and tackle him and, and, and haul him off to wherever you haul off people who run onto the field naked. So it's kind of, you know, I mean, no, nobody gets hurt by any of this, but you're going, man, who decides that they're going to take off all their clothes and run onto a soccer field naked? All right, so that that's fine. And again, if you want to see the naked stripper, the, the naked streaker, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty. So, true story. I, I play golf on Sunday morning with a group of, with a group of guys we've been playing for years, and we play at a public course in Ozaki County. My friends Dick and Mike know every every dive bar in Ozaki County. And there, there's one that they particularly like. And so after we play golf, I will join them for two beers. So that, that's our regular Sunday ritual. So we finish playing golf, and then we, we pour into the tavern about a little before two, and the bartender is there, and he says, I was hoping you were going to come in today. And I said, yeah. He said, did you, did you hear about the Lambeau Field streaker? And I said, yeah, I, I saw the, the Twitter stuff on. He said, well, he's going to be here in a couple minutes. I said, really? He said, yeah, that's his girlfriend down at the end of the bar. I said, oh, really? Um, I, I'm not going to mention the guy's name, um, but so apparently the, the story, and then sure enough, 10 minutes later, in walks the, the guy, fresh from, I don't know, being released from the Brown County Jail. So I'm, I'm now, I'm just fascinated by this whole story of what it is that inspires somebody to take off all their clothes and run across a football field, knowing that bad things are going to happen. Well, it starts, apparently what they're saying is that uh, when they did the blood alcohol test, he blew like a .29. Now, the legal limit is .08, so that's, you know, do the math, three and a half times over the legal limit. So alcohol probably was involved in this particular thing. Now, I've said this before. I do not understand how people can get that intoxicated because even in my younger days, long before Point two nine. I'm just I'm sleeping somewhere, you know, trying not to throw up. But this guy was apparently point two nine, jumps on the field. The story that they're telling at the bar is apparently he said to his girlfriend, "Do you have bail money?" And she said, "Why?" And at that point he jumps over the the railing, pulls off his pants, and takes off across the the field. Um, ultimately, you know, ending up as it, it turned out. So I, I'm still not, exa- I assume that this was an alcohol-fueled thing. For anybody who might be thinking of doing this, though, here here is the side. First of all, the guy was arrested, and they kept him in the Brown County Jail until his blood alcohol level was down to 0.0. So, I mean, whatever time this is, like 5 or 6 o'clock last night, you're now a guest of the Brown County Jail until probably, you know, mid-Sunday morning or whatever, which is not necessarily how you want to spend your your Sundays. Secondly, uh, the fines, $2,300 in fines. If you just walk away, the charges were lewd and lascivious conduct in a public place. Um, let's see, lewd and lascivious, indecent exposure in a public setting, and like one other one. But the thing with these charges is they they follow you. So I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to mention the guy's name, but you know, if you were to Google this guy's name, I think that there's a very good chance that you're going to see the mugshot and you're going to see all the various charges and. 
I'm just here to tell you that's not necessarily the thing that I want to be have following me around. You know, if I'm applying for jobs or looking for different things, oh, here, let me Google you, do a background. Oh, you're that guy that was running naked on Lambeau Field and things like that. Now, the the other interesting aspect, at least the story they were telling the tavern was, he, he asked the girlfriend, he said, do you have bail money? And before she can, like, really answer, you know, she just asked why, he, he jumps onto the field. Apparently, the credit card they had was in his pocket. So she doesn't have the credit card. He's on the field, drops the pants and stuff. And so you can't go back on the field to get it, which is why um, I don't think she's the one that ultimately got him out of, of jail. So and plus, I also the, the other irony of this is, all right, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I spend I don't know, I just it's such an Amazing concept. I can't even think of it. But if I've spent the night in the Brown County Jail because I got blind drunk, took off all my clothes and ran across the field, I don't know where the first place that I would go once I got out of the Brown County Jail was. But this, this, this guy walks into the bar. You know, and it's Somebody asked me, did you buy him a drink? I didn't. Um, just because if, if I was going to offer to buy him a drink, it might be Diet Coke or something like that. But anyhow, that was my like 15 minutes yesterday. You just never know. Walk into this bar after golf to have a beer and you never know who should walk in, but the Lambeau Park streaker. Well, I, I wish him all the best, but the bottom line is if you're considering trying something like this at home, my advice would be don't do it because well, it's one of those things where it might seem like a good idea at the time. Trust me, not going to work out well. <laughs> Number of people are texting me, um, or tweeting me. Tell, tell us the guy's name and stuff. Now, I mean, I, I think you maybe find it if you want to search, but that's not the point. I don't really. <laughs> the point is, I'm just sitting in a bar on a Sunday afternoon, and the guy who just spent 12 hours in the Brown County slammer for running naked happens to walk in. It was just in, kind of in the small world um, situation. Uh, the, <laughs> the the one thing is, he, he's in his 30s. I mean, it, it's kind of like my, my comment is, hey, Peter Pan. I, see, I, I mean, it's one of those things where... You know, maybe, you know, you're you're in your early 20s or something and you're with your your buds and you get yourself blind drunk and it seems like a good idea. But I'm thinking, I mean, by by 33, by 33, you would hope that maybe you'd, you'd kind of gotten to the point where no matter how much you've had to drink, you resist the urge to pull down your pants and run across the field, Lambeau Field. But uh, apparently that is not the case. All right. Let's let's switch gears. Uh, th- this is an interest. The story broke on Friday, and it's an interesting. It's an interesting take on this. This is, of course, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They are the Milwaukee Bucks, and Milwaukee is synonymous with a number of different things, including beer. You know, when I was growing up, the three big breweries they had here were Schlitz and Pabst and and Miller. And of course, Schlitz and Pabst are are long gone, at least being brewed in large large factories. You know, here in Milwaukee. But Miller remains. They employ an enormous number of people in Miller Valley. Now, Miller isn't locally owned anymore. It's Miller Coors, and it's owned by a South African company and things of of the like. But nevertheless, it is a huge Milwaukee employer and a Milwaukee presence. Um, The Milwaukee Bucks announced that they were unable to reach a deal 
continuing their sponsorship arrangement with Miller Coors. If you went to Pfizer Forum and you wanted to buy a beer, your choices were going to be Miller Coors products. That is not going to be the case next year. There's not going to be Miller Coors, which is sold at Pfizer Forum. Instead, wait for it, it's going to be Anheuser-Busch products. So if you want a light beer, Bud Light. If you want just a regular lager, they're going to be selling Budweiser. Now, here's what I am told happened. The, the buck, the sponsorship deal ended, so it was up for renewal. I am told that essentially Anheuser-Busch wanted this very badly and came in and made a financial offer, which might not even make any economic sense from Anheuser-Busch's perspective, but they wanted to make a statement. And so they, they just offered the Bucks so much money that, that Miller Coors couldn't, couldn't match it. It was one of these deals where it just that they they wanted it so they could say okay we're going to be selling you know Budweiser and stuff in the Milwaukee uh, you know event area so that's what it's going to be and Miller Coors looked at it and made a decision that it, it didn't make any economic sense for them to do it so Anheuser Busch again I I'm told that this deal there, there's no way they make money on this deal but the they they at least get that presence in and they kind of get to sort of poke a, a finger figuratively speaking in the eye of of Miller Coors from the Bucks perspective they sold to the highest bidder Anheuser-Busch offered much more money than Miller and they took it our number is 855-616-1620 that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text line the Bucks are getting all sorts of heat for going with Anheuser-Busch as opposed to Miller. Is that a legitimate argument and complaint? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you fault the Bucks for going with the highest bidder? 855-616-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a minute. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Okay, so the the Bucks announced that Miller Coors is out as the primary beer sponsor at Pfizer Forum. They've cut a new deal with Anheuser Busch. I am told that Anheuser Busch wanted the deal. They came in. They just paid an enormous amount of money. I'm told that it makes very very little economic sense from Anheuser Busch's perspective that they've really kind of overpaid. But I'm told that they just wanted to do it. They wanted to be able to say, hey, you know, we've got Budweiser products in the home of the Milwaukee, in this case, Bucks. Right, do you fault the Bucks for taking the money? Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I don't fault the Bucks because uh, it's human nature. You got to follow the money in all these cases. Human nature is you got to follow the money. Uh, Miller Coors is owned by a South American, com- uh, South African company, and uh, Budweiser just uh, as going back to your reference to the streaker before. Whoever drops their pants gets a better shot at this. So <laughs> uh, I don't fault the Bucks. Do you fault the Bucks, given the fact that the taxpayers helped underwrite the cost of building Pfizer Forum? Is it a betrayal to the the local business that you you kind of take the the better offer? That's a that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, okay, I can't really fault the I can't really fault the. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, you know, uh, they're still getting the money, so I I don't yeah. know. Okay, uh, no, no, fair enough. No, thanks for calling. It's a betrayal, but, you know, 
it is what it is. Well, no, thanks. Right. I guess, see, that's that's sort of how I, I look at this as well. To me, f- first of all, it's a business. And so I don't, I mean, the Bucks they went with the highest bidder. And that's, I, I think that's a, a reasonable sort of thing. I think that's what, what most people would do. If you're selling your house and, I don't know, your, your neighbor who's, you know, help pull in your garbage and get your mail and cut your grass over the years. Your neighbor wants it and he offers you 300,000 and somebody from out of town comes in and offers you 400,000. My guess is you're going to you're going to sell the house to the the highest bidder. That that's kind of the nature of this. So I mean, I don't fault the bucks for doing this. It is a little bit complicated because again, you you're you're playing in a facility and one of the reasons that you're making as much money as you are is you're in a building that was was partially underwritten by the taxpayers. At the same time, there, there was no there was no deal. There was nothing that was put in paper on paper saying that the Bucks have to I don't know sell their their naming rights or they have to sell their um, in this case their their beer rights to a, a local company. And the truth of the matter is that even though Miller Coors is a again it's a situation where I mean they they employ a lot of people in the area. You know Budweiser is becoming an increasing presence presence in the Wisconsin area. And in this case they apparently. Apparently, very, very much wanted to, you know, be the beer provider to the point that they were willing to overpay for it. So, I guess the bottom line of this is, I, I don't fault the Bucks for taking the best deal. My guess is most of us would have done the very, very same thing if we were faced with similar sort of situations. So, I don't fault the Bucks for doing this, but it does show again another example of an of the end of an era. When it comes to sponsorships and, and local control and things of the like, it's it's just it's kind of inevitable. Are they bad guys? No. I will tell you this. Alex Lazary, who is on leave from the Bucks, who's run his Senate campaign uh, based partly on, hey, I'm a young executive for the Bucks. Look at the great things we're doing. I know he's taking a lot of heat for this. Don't know that that's fair or not, but I guess if you're going to run for Senate on these things, you got to recognize some of that stuff might happen. Speaking of politics, on the Democratic side of the aisle, there's been four, four major candidates running for the right to challenge Ron Johnson in November. And one of the four, the one who was really been running for going on two years, Tom Nelson, he's the Outagamie County executive. And Nelson... Nelson is to the left what Timothy Rantham is to the right, sort of the crazy, crazy uncle with the really, really wacky ideas. Nelson is the guy that wanted to nationalize the oil companies, as as an example. And he's about as far left as you can possibly get. He just was never able to break through. I, I don't know if it's because his, his policies were so wacky or whether it was because he didn't have the, the statewide name recognition that Mandela Barnes had from being the lieutenant governor, and he certainly didn't have the money that Alex Lazary has put into his race and that the state treasurer Sarah Godlewski has put into her race. Both of them have spent, well, Lazary spent like 12 plus million dollars, and my guess is he'll spend more. Godlewski has spent about four million dollars. So Nelson has dropped out two weeks and one day before the election. His name still appears in the ballot, but, but he says he's not you know, he's not going to actively campaign anymore, and he has endorsed Mandela Barnes. My general sense is that as we get closer to the election, the, the uh, more and more people start co- are starting to coalesce around Mandela Barnes, and I would say that he's the clear front runner, despite spending 
millions and millions of dollars. I don't get the sense that Alex Lazary is breaking through and Sarah Godlewski, I don't get the sense that she's breaking through either. So, I mean, if, if you were to ask me to make a prediction right now, I, I think it's probably Mandela Barnes's race to lose, but there's still two le- weeks left, and I guess there's always something that could come out and would change uh, perception. But the, the argument, and one of the reasons why Nelson says he's endorsing uh, Mandela Barnes, is that Mandela Barnes, he believes, is the furthest to the left. I I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that that's the case. I mean, I this is going to be one of the interesting things, and I know that there's some people say, well, Ron Johnson's going to win in a walkover. Other people say, no, I don't think he's going to get reelected. Once th- this election starts to focus on issues, what you're going to find is that whoever of the three remaining candidates gets the nomination, whether it's Barnes or Lazary or the Godlewski, th- these are people that are way, 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 did I say way, way to the left uh, of Tony Evers, way, 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 way to the left of Joe Biden. So Wisconsin voters are going to have a a real clear choice between whether you want to go in that sort of like far left wing direction or, you know, whether we want something closer to the, the center. And I think, you know, once once those choices are presented, once it's a head-to-head matchup, I, I think you're going to see Ron Johnson standing in the polls picks up dramatically once it's not Johnson versus somebody else, but it's Johnson versus whoever that would be. But time will tell. In any event, Tom Nelson dropping out of the Wisconsin Democratic U.S. primary, and then there were three. All right. The University of Wisconsin uh, has cut off. Now, Badger season tickets are are very much in demand. Not as much in demand as, say, the Packers season tickets, where you have you know, waiting lists of 20 or 30 years. But they are very, very much in demand. Earlier this spring, apparently UW announced, informed 118 season ticket buyers that their season tickets would not be renewed for the upcoming football season. All of these 118 buyers had purchased at least 20 season tickets, at least 20 season tickets, and in some cases, more than that. So you might say, wait a second, Jeff, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, you're you're in the business to sell tickets. You know, that that's it. And, and you've got somebody that's that's buying a huge block of tickets, 20 or 30 tickets. Why in the world would UW say, well, we're, we're not going to continue to sell you the tickets? Well, what's going on is that UW apparently did an investigation and they believe that the vast majority of these 118 individuals, what they're doing is they're not buying the tickets to use themselves. It's not like, hey, I've got the Jeff Wagner company, and what I do is I've got 20 season tickets, and every week I take employees, I take customers, etc., and we all go to the game. What they're saying is that these various season ticket holders with these large accounts, based on their investigation, they believe they have a history of reselling tickets on the secondary market. So in other words, these people aren't buying the tickets to use themselves. What they are doing is they are turning around and they are trying to sell them at a, a premium for this. And it appears that they are, again, targeting ticket brokers. UW says, look, we're, we're, we're being real upfront about this. We're targeting people who buy season tickets for the primary purpose of reselling them. Our intent is to sell tickets to people who want to use them. 
Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, what do you think of this? Is UW going too far by saying we're, we're not essentially going to allow ticket brokers to be season ticket holders and to buy up large quantities of tickets and then resell them so they make money? We want the tickets to be going to people who are going to use them. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some of the ticket brokers are upset about this. They say, hey, look, you know, there, there's not that much money necessarily to be made on, on these games. You know, some games we take a loss. Some games we make some money about this. But, you know, we, you know, um, UW, you know, has, you know, they, they have their own, if, if you can't use, if you can't use your own tickets, you know, UW has a sanctioned way where you can go and you can resell them through that. It's hypocritical. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't fault UW for what they're doing. Do you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Hey, this is a very cool contest that we are running this week. Jim Ursay, who's the owner and CEO of the NFL's Indianapolis Colts, is bringing items from the Jim Ursay Collection. That's a renowned assemblage of iconic artifacts from rock, music, American history, and pop culture to Chicago on August 2nd of this year at the Aeon Grand Ballroom at Navy Pier. Um, and that's going to include a performance by the Jim Ursay Band. This is actually, it's very entertaining and it's a very cool thing. Um, we're giving people people a chance to win tickets to go to see that for official contest rules visit wtmj.com now one of our texters says jeff who doesn't resell tickets if you can't make it to the game there are some people that abuse this but can you blame everyone well let me, let me just be clear here uw is not saying we're going to pull your season tickets if you've if you've resold them at any point in time what they're doing is that they're targeting the ticket brokers. So if you're an individual and you've got two season tickets and you, you can't make the game and you sell them to somebody, that they're, you're not being targeted. The people that are being targeted are the 100-plus buyers who buy at least 20 tickets, and then they found evidence that they're not using them. So, again, there's nothing wrong with buying 100-plus tickets. I'm sure they'd love to sell you 300 tickets, and I'm sure they have some corporate sponsors that maybe buy that large number of tickets. But what they're targeting targeting is some of these individuals who are buying large amounts of tickets and they're associated with or they are the ticket brokers. So all they're doing is they're buying them for the purpose of reselling them, presumably at an inflated and I say inflated at a higher rate. Um, it's interesting that they estimate that with more than 100 buyers of at least 20 tickets off the books for 2022, that's at least 2,000 ticket purchases that are removed. Season tickets cost $378 per seat before fees and contributions. So this this revenue hit is about three-quarters of a million dollars that UW is taking. So in many respects, it would be easier just to go with the flow. It would be easier to just continue this. But UW has made the decision that, you know, we – we want we want these tickets to be available to the fans and we don't want to force people into a secondary market um jeff uw can protect their seats as they please as long as they keep their end of the deal my oldest daughter is a freshman this year and was not able to get tickets when they went on sale i heard several parents were using multiple machines to help their kids get tickets um anything uw do can do to stop games gets a thumbs up for me um my daughter is looking at several times face value per game at this point and i, I think uw is getting these complaints 
you know, and they want the tickets to be available to the fans at, I, I think, what I'm going to say, reasonable prices. And I, look, and I'm, this isn't an indictment of ticket brokers. I mean, I understand that there is a market for this, and I understand that they feel the need for it. But candidly, I think this is very, very similar to what you have where you have a lot of musicians nowadays that, you know, cut their own deals and make arrangements to try to do everything they can to prevent the resale of tickets. So, you know, if you're going to see the Eagles concert, yeah, you're, you're going to pay a lot of money. You're going to pay 250 let's say it's 250 bucks for a ticket. But they're going to do everything they can to to stop the resale. So it is the broker that ends up making the five hundred or the six hundred or the seven hundred um, dollars. Jeff uh, Camp Randall is absolutely huge in size. Between the upkeep, making improvements, and the money needed to pay employees, the university needs all the help they can get. Um, university has every right to stop the resale of large amounts of. Of tickets. Well, I, I think they, they want to just guarantee that they're getting the money. Jeff, it's about time somebody has done this. The tickets and games are for the fans. You can probably get 50 plus new season ticket holders and who can and will go to all the games year after year. Yes, you've taken away a revenue stream from some people, scalpers, and unfortunately for some people, the only way they can get tickets is to go through a broker, but you know, you want to have the real fans that are buying the tickets. At least the real fans who are buying the tickets in in the first place. Jeff, I think it's time these venues stand up and make a stance for the average person trying to get into a game. Jeff, I think it's fair for UW to make this policy. It helps the little people like me get a ticket at a reasonable price. I'm all in favor of this. Jeff, I don't blame them. We build on capitalism, number one, but number two, the better deals they get for things, the savings they can pass on to the people that are, in fact, going there. Um, I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a, a factor as well. Look, the bottom line of all this is, again, to me, what UW is doing is something that I think is going to maybe cost them some money in the short run. And I understand it gets a little bit complicated because some of the people who are in the resale industry are also fans themselves and have accumulated season tickets over over the years um, and, and some of those people are complaining that there should be a difference between them because, okay, maybe they've got 30 season tickets and they, they use four or five and then they sell the rest versus some you know national company that's just doing it purely as a business transaction. I think that's a really difficult line to 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 um, again try to figure out where you're going to you know draw the line on that. So I, I think this is one of the things if, if you're lucky enough to get season tickets, that that's great. But the general rule is those season tickets are for individual use. Nobody's saying you can't sell a game here and there if you can't go to it. But if you've got 20 tickets and you're reselling them every, you know, every game, you're, you're not a fan. You're doing it in a business. And UW is trying to make sure the tickets go to fans first at the more reasonable price. I don't fault them for that at all. Okay, now a minute ago, I told you about this Jim Ursi, who is the owner and CEO of the NFL's Indianapolis Colts, and he's bringing items from the Jim Ursi collection, which is it's very, very cool. It's a renowned assemblage of iconic artifacts from rock music, American history, and pop culture to Chicago on August 2nd, 2022, at the Navy Pier, Ian Grand Ballroom, and it's going to include a performance by the Jim Ursi Band. All right, so we've got our official contest rules at WTMJ.com, but, but here's the deal. The, the good folks at the Jim Ursay Collection, they've given me a pair of tickets to give away to 
one lucky listener each day this week. So caller number 10, 855-616-1620. Caller number 10 to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line wins pair of tickets go down to chicago navy pier see this performance check out all the artifacts it's really going to be cool um and it's it's a great value so caller number 10-855-616-1620 wins pair of tickets and we will be giving away a pair of tickets all week each day all right charlie will be lining up the calls determining the winner a couple interesting things that happened over the weekend and and i know many of you probably know the name Vince McMahon when I mention the name Vince McMahon. If you are a fan of pop culture in general, but a fan of professional wrestling in particular, Vince McMahon completely and totally changed the landscape when it came to professional wrestling. Before Vince McMahon came onto the scene in the early 1980s, wrestling was a series of individual territories run by promoters all across the country. He came in with the idea that he was going to start a giant cable syndication series and go national. He's the guy that really... Um, helped Hulk Hogan explode, for example, and found, you know, WrestleMania and things like that. And he turned the World Wrestling Federation, now that's what it was originally, WWF, now it's WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, turned it into a, a major player in a multi-billion dollar Wall Street company. The announcement that came over the weekend is he stepped down at the age of 76, not necessarily voluntarily, but apparently Wall Street Journal had been disclosing that he had made multiple million-dollar payouts to women who had alleged sexual misconduct on his part, and uh, the WWE was investigating it, and ultimately, I think, in an effort to kind of make this whole thing go away, Vince McMahon stepping down. He's not going to have any part, anything to do with the company. I mean, he's still the majority stockholder, but he's no longer going to be involved in day-to-day operations. He's no longer going to be uh, able to do creative. And that's a huge story because, like I say, if you like professional wrestling, Vince McMahon has been the Mac Daddy of pro wrestling for several decades now and it's going to be interesting to see where this goes after he leaves his daughter stephanie she's going to take over also last week we were talking about streaming services and the the guy who runs netflix had predicted that within five to ten years what they call linear tv you know the broadcast tv stations that say okay we're going to put on the jeff wagner show at nine o'clock at night on a tuesday that that nobody's going to be watching tv like that anymore it's all going to be streaming and the, the one exception to that was going to I've always said with sports because sports is something you don't in typically, you know, timeshare and things like that. You want to watch it live. Announcement today, the NFL is now launching its own streaming service, NFL Plus, which will give you the ability to it's direct to consumer. It's a subscription service, access to live regular season and playoff games. The only catch is you won't be able to stream this on your televisions. It will be on your tablets or on your smartphones. So the NFL getting into the streaming business as well. When we come back, what do you do about Donald Trump? We'll discuss. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It is, it's the end of an era in many respects. In the 12 o'clock hour of the program, we were talking about the decision 
that the Milwaukee Bucks have made to essentially cut ties with Miller Coors Brewing. Um, uh, what they're going to do is, from now on, Anheuser-Busch is going to have the exclusive right to sell beer at, at Fiserv. So it, it's going to be Bud Light and Coors Light and Anheuser-Busch products instead of Miller Coors products. And it, it's it's sort of tough because, on the one hand, even though I, I understand that it's no longer owned, Miller Coors is no longer owned by, you know, people in Milwaukee. It's still a big brewing. There's several thousand people that, that work down in, in Miller Brewing in Miller Valley. And, you know, you think when you think of Milwaukee, you think of Miller Light and Miller products like that. So I, I get it. At the same time, I'm told what happens is Anheuser-Busch wanted wanted the concession. Um, to the point that they, at least some people are telling me, and they're not releasing the, the dollar amounts of this, but I'm being told that they just they just overpaid. When I say overpaid, that's kind of a tough way to say it. They, they wanted it so badly that maybe they're even willing to lose money on the deal because they, they want to be... They want to be in, if they're trying to make a huge inroad in the Milwaukee area, that that's one of the ways they do it. And I do, by the way, understand that Anheuser-Busch is the, the, the largest selling beer in Wisconsin now, and this is a way to get them into the Milwaukee market. So I, I don't fault the Bucks for taking the money. I understand it's a little bit more complicated when you're, I don't know, playing in a stadium that was underwritten in part by taxpayer dollars. Do you owe something to the local companies? But there's nothing like that in the agreement. And again, it, it's it's a business. And the example I gave last time was last hour was, you know, if you've you're selling your house and your neighbor who's been your friend for years and has you know cut helped cut your grass and has picked up your mail when you're gone and has shoveled your walk from time to time and your neighbor wants to buy your house for three hundred thousand and you get somebody from out of town who rolls in and wants to pay four hundred thousand, my guess is most people are going to pay take that at four hundred thousand. And so I kind of liken it like that. This is a it it's at least an analogous sort of situation. The Packers right now are having their their annual shareholders meeting at Lambeau Field. And if you have been to Lambeau Field, you know they have different gates that you can go in, and those gates are sponsored by different companies. Um, One of the gates, the South Gate, has, for years and years, it's been sponsored by Shopco. It's called the Shopco Gate. Now, if if you're new to Wisconsin, you might say, what is this, this Shopco thing? Well, I mean, Shopco was, Shopco were, I mean, think Walmart, think Kmart, think those sort of things. That was those type of, you know, big box stores. But they were primarily located in smaller communities that you, you didn't see, as a general rule, you didn't see shop goes in, for example, the Milwaukee area. I'm not sure if there was one down here or not, but typically they were in the, the smaller communities. Um, Shopco was originally founded in Green Bay in 1962, and it, it had a huge growth spurt. Shopco's were, were all over Wisconsin. Well, uh, we all know what happened with the Internet and with changes in people's shoppings and habits and stuff, and Shopco... Uh, declared bankruptcy, oh, about three, four, five years ago, and now all the Shopco stores are closed, except for there's like optical stores. There's like Shopco optical around, but that's not what Shopco was based on. I bring this up because they announced today that the Shopco gate is no more. Lambeau Field Southgate, previously called the Shopco gate, is now going to be known as the Invisalign gate. 
the Invisalign gate. That's the uh, that's the thing for like the braces or think. I think the kind of braces that aren't braces. I think that's what Invisalign is. But anyhow, if you're used to going in the ShopGo gate when you go up to events at Lambeau Field, it is no more. And and again, you you understand that ShopGo went out of business. You know, ShopGo went. Uh, there's no more ShopGo stores that are there. So it just makes sense to kind of move on. Things always change in that regard. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, there is an increasing push for the Joe Biden Merrick Garland Justice Department to indict Donald Trump. Would that be a good idea? Stick around. So very glad to have you with us. All right. I I know I have irritated some of you over the course of the last several weeks when I have raised the question about what the point of the January 6th committee hearings have been. Now, now hear me out. I, this, I, the, the January 6th committee hearings have, I think, pretty clearly demonstrated that the behavior of Donald Trump after the election and then up to and including January 6th has been that was absolutely appalling, whether it was the refusal to accept the results of the election, surrounding himself with crazies um, who were coming up with every sort of, of weird theory that you could possibly have, to you know his actions on January 6th, whether it was incitement or incitement by silence, sitting around watching the, the, the whatever you want to call them, the, the rioters, the, uh, again, um, and any phrase you want to use, I think it's always been very, very disappointing. And I think if the purpose of the January 6th committee hearings has been to demonstrate that Donald Trump is unfit to hold higher office, should he run again? Okay, I, I get it. The, the question is, is that really the role of, of a government, uh, of Congress, to decide that they're going to target an individual and say, okay, we're going to you know, try to convince the public that they should never run again. Isn't that maybe the function that, I don't know, the political you know, opponents of that person should have? But, but that's clearly one of the things. One of the other arguments that is being made is that these hearings are being used as a basis to try to create public pressure that will be put on the United States Department of Justice to bring charges against Donald Trump, whether it's conspiracy to defraud the public, conspiracy to obstruct justice, whether it's sedition, which means treason, which is a very, very difficult thing to to prove. But the, the other argument is it, these the purpose of this is to try to bring this stuff out to the public. So regardless of what came out in the impeachment hearings and those trials, etc., now that the public sees it, maybe there will be public pressure put on the Department of Justice to bring charges. Now, I would argue that that's not an appropriate role of, of Congress to try to use its bully pulpit to pressure the executive branch, in this case the Department of Justice, to, to bring charges. That's something that the Department of Justice should be doing on its own. You know, you've got to conduct a grand jury investigation, you know, assemble evidence yourself and then decide whether, you know, they should do it or not. But regardless, this is where we are now. I think a lot of people who have watched the, these hearings um, again, I'm not sure that it's really plowed new ground. And by that, I mean, I, I understand that you've put some meat on the bones, but all, but all this stuff, Trump's behavior, et cetera, 
um, his increasingly s- desire to surround himself with, uh, again, sort of the lunatic fringe uh, of people trying to come up with one um, stranger theory after another to try to have him maintain himself in power. A, a lot of that ha- has been known, maybe not in the exact detail, but we knew what was in fact going on, and we certainly knew what happened on January 6th. So there's a lot of pressure right now. A lot of people maybe have changed their opinion to the extent that they say, okay, well, maybe he shouldn't have been impeached because he was already out of office. But now that we see what he's done, we, we would support like bringing criminal charges. Bringing criminal charges against an ex-president is a, a very, I, I would suspect it's pretty much probably an unprecedented sort of thing. It would tie up the nation for... Oh, probably the better part of a year, maybe two years in, you know, criminal proceedings that may or may not result in, in a conviction. It would obviously be a huge distraction. For some people, it would be vindication. Oh, Donald Trump was awful and evil. For people who are fans of Donald Trump, it would make him a, a martyr and it would pretty much assure that this would be the focus of this country over the course of, well, whenever the indictment would be returned until there was a trial, and with, with no guarantee one way or the other as to what the verdict was going to be. This isn't like Steve Bannon's trial where, okay, it was essentially like a, a slow guilty plea. Donald Trump would have many, many defenses to any charge which would be brought. But nevertheless, I understand that there's some people who will not be satisfied till they see him in an orange jumpsuit and want to have charges brought. Our number That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you want to see happen? Do you want to see the Department of Justice bring criminal charges against Donald Trump? Um, Do you want to see him put in jail? Is that realistic? If Donald Trump is charged, and just like the two efforts at impeachment that failed, I I think what you saw both times, it it emboldened him that, you know, he was impeached and then was ultimately, you know, not convicted, was, you know, not found guilty of that in the Senate trials. If you were to go ahead and bring criminal charges against him, tie up the courts and tie up the attention of the American public for the next year or two, and then ultimately a, a jury or a judge decides that there's not sufficient evidence to prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, well, you know, where, where do we go from there? 855-616-1620, do you want to see criminal charges brought against Donald Trump? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Diane. Diane, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I am well, thank you. What do you want to see happen to former President Trump? Um, I would like to see him charged, but it's not even necessarily about him being charged. It's about him being held accountable for what he did and which has been laid out by fellow Republicans and also to stop him from running for president again so that we don't have to go through this in the next election. If he is not held accountable and he does win again, you know, look at all the scandals that we had to live through for the last four years. And if he loses, is he going to challenge the election again? And I just feel like our country can't go through that for another four years. Well, let me let me ask you the flip side of that. Let, let's say 
the, the Department of Justice would try to prosecute him for conspiring to defraud the U.S. Uh, the theory would be he, he knew he had lost and he refused to accept the results of that and maybe conspiring to obstruct an official proceeding, which was the electoral vote count. So you return an indictment. The trial, the, the proceedings, I mean, it's not like it's going to happen in a day or two. You will probably spend a, all of 2023 and maybe a good chunk of 2024 arguing that is that is that a distraction you know what what is that going to do to the country i guess is my question what is it going to do to the country if if it's ignored and he runs for office and he's going to say hey i can go you know in on madison avenue and shoot somebody and i won't be charged do you think he's? Um, do you think he's got a chance happen. of winning? I mean, I guess I. I mean, maybe I, I've, I've said this before. I'm I think. Yeah, I guess I think the only way Joe I, Biden I'm could afraid. get elected is to run against Trump. I guess is that it. I mean, do you really think that there's enough people who would vote for him again? I don't think Joe Biden should run again, and I voted for him. Um, but I, I'm afraid that because Biden has done a poor job as president that all the Republicans who did not want to vote for Trump voted for Biden will now vote for Trump. I don't trust the Republican base enough not to or to vote for somebody else because yeah. Trump has such a strong hold on everybody in the Republican Party. Why do you think that They're is? They're afraid of him. And why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I I. I've been asking myself that forever. Okay. I don't understand how so many people in such high positions, you know, in the government, but also in the general public, um, are willing to ruin their lives and their careers over this man who I feel ruined our country and just um, disrespected our Constitution over and over again. Okay, thanks. And I just don't no. understand what he has. Okay, no, thanks for call, Diane. I appreciate it. 855 Here's a text. Jeff, at this point, I'm so tired about hearing about Trump. I don't care if they lock him up or if he lives happily ever after at Mar-a-Lago. I just want him out of my life. 855 Mark, who is calling hey. us from Florida. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have to strongly disagree with the lady on before. Um, they used to call these in the Soviet Union show circuses, okay, or show trials in Nazi Germany. And the reason I compare that to them is we go back to the two so-called impeachments. We go back to the Mueller investigation. We go back to Russia, Russia, Russia. Not a charge proven anywhere. Okay, so the only reason Trump makes this lady calling before me Upset and just is because the media is hell bent twenty four seven three sixty five to have a man who hasn't been in office constantly on the news so that they can batter him. So the question comes then: Why? What are they afraid of? I have a twenty five page printout here from the White House archives. President Trump, from what I can see, and I'm a retired history teacher, social studies teacher, did more in one term for every. American, minorities especially, and the records are there in the federal government to prove it for employment rate, housing ownership rate, et cetera, et cetera. Mark, do you think Trump is electable? Do you think he, let, let's say there's no indictments and he decides to run again. Do you think he gets the Republican nomination and do you think he can beat whoever the Democratic candidate is? 
You know, Jeff, I enjoy your show, and because I enjoy your show, I know you frequently come down here to Florida. And um, I know that you like Key West. I suggest maybe not Key West so much, pretty liberal area, um, pretty resorty area, but I suggest you ask most people around the state of Florida. Probably he is still more popular down here than Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis, our governor, is, and I still consider Wisconsin my home state because I spent most of my life there. Um, Ron DeSantis can do little, if anything, wrong down here. And Donald Trump is every bit as much liked. I think we have to ask the question, why is this January 6th committee going to be postponed now and then reinstated, as they have announced, in late September so that they can build up the false innuendo leading into the election? Okay, got it. Mark, thanks for calling. I'm sorry, we're, we're going to continue this this topic uh, after the news. I'm kind of up against the clock, but you have heard two diametrically opposed views. My question to you is, would you like to see Donald Trump indicted? Um, and, and then where, where do we go from here? Because I, I want to have this very real conversation because, trust me, criminal proceedings take a long time. If you indict Donald Trump, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get a conviction at all. This will probably mean most of 2023 is occupied with the idea of, of trying to indict a former sitting president. Is, is that good for the country? Does that need to happen to stop him from running again and winning again? We continue the conversation. 855-616-1620 is our number. Golf's next major happens at the club at Lac La Belle in Oconomowoc. Want to play a round of golf with your favorite WTMJ personalities and partners? This is your chance to win a foursome at the WTMJ Classic on August 22nd. Tune into Wisconsin's Morning News and Wisconsin's Afternoon News all week and listen for the cue to call. If you can correctly answer a golf trivia question, you'll qualify for a chance to hit the links with us. It's the WTMJ Classic on Monday, August 22nd at the club at Lac La Belle in Oconomowoc. This has been a couple tough couple weeks for actors who portrayed mobsters. Um, first, you had the news that James Caan, who you know was a prolific actor, but probably best known for his role in The Godfather as Sonny Corleone, he passed away. Then you had uh, what it was about ten days ago, um, Paul um, Tony Sirico, who played you know Paulie Gutierrez on The Sopranos, he he ended up passing away. Now the announcement today is that Paul Sorvino um, had died at the age of eighty three. You you might not know the name, but you would certainly know his face if, if you watched Goodfellas. And Goodfellas is, I think, arguably you know up there with um, the up there with The Godfather is probably the most popular mob movie ever. Um, uh, Paul Servino played like one of the, the top mobsters, Paulie, in, in Goodfellows, and um, he just passed away at the age of 83. So tough, tough couple weeks for actors who portray mobsters. All right, what we're talking about right now is, is where we go from here. The January 6th committees are in recess for a few weeks, but the Justice Department is apparently conducting an investigation of Donald Trump, trying to determine whether any criminal charges would be issued. Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has said that he will not be seeking charge. There will not be any indictments returned before the November elections, if at all. And that's because the Department of Justice has very, very strict rules about not trying to influence elections and things like that. And clearly, if you're a couple months out of an election and you were to indict Donald Trump, you know, that that would 
that would be a giant bombshell that would have the potential for affecting elections. That doesn't mean that he can't be indicted. But if he is, if for the sake of argument, he were to be indicted on various charges late this year, early next year, it would pretty much guarantee that all of 2023 and maybe a portion of 2024 would be occupied by this attempt to prosecute a former president. Um, there's, there's no question if if you go after President, former President Trump, it, it could certainly backfire. It could wind up empowering him instead of imprisoning him. He will be in the spotlight. You know, he will cast it as political retribution by Joe Biden. Um, so. And if you talk to a lot of legal scholars, while they say there's maybe theories that you could go ahead, some various conspiracy theories, it's anything but a dead bang winner. So my question is, regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump one way or the other, is there merit to trying to bring criminal charges or is that a distraction and we do we just need to move on? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to John. John, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Okay, um, I figured this way. Uh, hi, Donald Trump is really bold. You know, he's still doing the same things that he's always done. Um, as far as putting him in jail, that ain't going to happen. You know, I just think it's a waste of time. All this television stuff in their own air trying, trying to do this and do that. You know, um, if he if he if he if he if he's done something to be criminally charged for, um, then charge him, whether he's the president or not. If not, let all the people out that's done the same thing equally that he done that wasn't a president. I just don't think it's fair to have one guy, you know, that, that that's above the law. And I feel like uh, he's going to be above the law. Yeah, well, now, yeah, I was going to say, run, work, work with me on this one, John, for just a second. Let's say, let's say they indict him on a couple different conspiracy charges in connection with this, and they, they don't convict him beyond a reasonable doubt. Would that have the effect of then... I don't know, making it maybe more likely that he would run and could win in 2024? Would he be emboldened by that? I, I, I think that, that, that you know, if they don't convict him, then let him run. It, I just feel like that um, they should have somebody else there that they can beat him. But then once he loses, if he loses, and keep up with this charade about, oh, well, you know, it's all rigged and stuff, that, that's just not fair. Let him run. Go ahead, let him run. Uh, you know, if he wins, he wins. You know, but um, but but don't come with this. Well, you know, I won anyway. No, that's not fair. Thanks, Nicole. I appreciate it. What I hear you saying is what a number of our texts are saying. Jeff, I wish Trump would go away. He's fractured the GOP. His behavior after the election shows him to be incompetent and too corrupt to hold the office. Well, you know, the, the problem with that is... There, there's a difference between you know where where voters are and and I, I look I I understand I I just don't think he's electable I, I I don't and I don't think as this all plays out I I don't think even if he runs he gets the Republican nomination because I just think there's an enormous number of Republicans who just even though they will appreciate some of the things that he did while he was president, are going to look at, at just the, the chaos and are going to look at his conduct after no, the November election and just refuse to be able to vote for him again. Now, maybe I'm going to be wrong about that. Maybe I'm going to be wrong about that, but I just I don't see any way that Donald Trump gets elected president, and I'm not sure I see any way that he really gets elected, um, gets renominated. but I concede that he can cause a lot of chaos while that's going Going on. Let's talk to Sandy. Sandy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Hi, Sandy. I guess with this whole argument and all of the people that have, have t- come before me, and I agree with a lot of points they made, um, I do believe 
Trump did do some good things for this country. I'm, I'm glad that he took on China. There's a lot of things I think he did well. But the fundamental argument is, you know, like you said, should he be charged? And he should if the evidence shows that he should be charged. Um, my biggest fear is that he doesn't love this country like a president should. And that was evident on January 6th. Um, and the people who argue against that are, you know, the Trump supporters are saying, well, this is just a big um, show in, in Washington. But there a lot of those people um, are watching the actual January 6th hearings. And if you don't watch those hearings, then I'm sorry, your, your argument's invalid because you need to actually hear the information from a bipartisan group by some of Trump's biggest supporters back in the day and still Trump supporters saying, no, he did the wrong thing and he did it really, really wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing that you say is he is he electable. I got to tell you, listening to your station six, seven years ago, people have said the same thing. Trump's not electable. He's never going to make it. He's never going to win. And look yeah, where we are. Right? Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, it's, you know, so, it's, it, no, let me stop. It's, it's kind of interesting. I think... I think the reason he won in 2016 is because he was sort of an unknown commodity at the time. Lots of people were disillusioned with Hillary Clinton, including like a lot of Democrats who maybe sat out the election. You know, Donald Trump had that kind of cachet about being the the outsider and being the the, the TV star. He's the you're fired guy from the Celebrity Apprentice. Um, in 2020, he was the known commodity. So, I mean, I, I guess I look at it and think that stuff is, is kind of changed from when he won. But, I, I, you know, who knows? You're right. I did not think he was going to win in 2016, and he did. Yeah. So. And, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I, I, again, I would, when I'm, I, I started watching the January 6th hearings very openly. I, I, do, I, I, was, I was just very interested in the process. Um, and watching them, I have been astonished and, and many conservative people have been. And I think that we, when we talk about, well, is this going to consume our nation for the next year or two, doing the right thing is going to consume the nation. And, um, we need, if it's, if there is enough evidence and the DOJ knows more than anybody listening to this station right now, um, they're going to hopefully make the right decision. That's what we have to hope with our government. But I. I okay, so it, Sandy, what happens? And I will just give you my perspective as somebody who you know used to make charging decisions all the time. There are there are cases that are just dead bang winners, and there are cases where you can make an argument that a crime has been committed, but they're 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 not sure things. There, you know, that there's going to be defenses. You know, there it's no guarantee. So if you indict a former president. Do you have to be absolutely 99.9% certain that you're going to be able to get a conviction, or do you take a flyer? Well, I'm not sure where this is going to work, but whether it's going to work out or not, but let's let's give it a try. Let's throw stuff up and see if it sticks. Do you have to be absolutely sure that you're going to get a conviction before you indict a former president? Yes, I believe you do. Yeah, I do, I do. too. I, no. I mean, as much as we want, yeah, I mean, as much as you want to say it, that would waste ridiculous amounts of money and time and, and, and embolden that force yeah. all, all again. But um, being, you know, being quiet and not charging him, unfortunately, might actually make hit this go away in some ways because enough of people have seen now what really happened. Yeah. But no. 
no, I agree. Into 2024. Yeah. yeah. No, so it's I agree with you. Thanks. And I guess that, that, see, that, that's my, that's my point. And I understand that there's some people who see this as, as a black and white sort of thing. Oh, of course he's a criminal. He's guilty of sedition. He's guilty of treason. You gotta bring charges. And I, I will tell you that there are defenses to that. Now, whether the defenses work or not, I, I don't know. But this is always the kind of decision. And it would happen, I, like I say, when you're reviewing cases, a lot of times, hey, it's a bank robbery case. I, I know for sure, yeah, we, this is the guy that robbed the bank. Here we've got it. This is our evidence. But sometimes, especially in some of these in like white collar cases or whatever, there are, you, and I will tell you, there are going to be all sorts of defenses that we will have. There were going to be legal defenses. He's going to say, hey, I, I had no intent. I mean, I, I, had, I had the Sidney Powells and the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, and they were telling me, and I still believe to this day that I didn't lose the election. They were telling me about all these different things i didn't have any criminal intent that was involved here and and you can agree with that or not agree with that but keep in mind before you bring charges you have to be able to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt what would be in my opinion a disaster for this country would be to bring charges against a former president that are going to be viewed in many circles as political retribution now maybe it is maybe it isn't to bring charges and not be able to secure a conviction. If that happens, well, I mean, I, I'm seeing some of this stuff saying that would lead to a civil war. I, I don't want to overstate it, but that would be a very, very bad scenario. And that's why before you bring charges, in this case, you've got to make sure that they're, that you're going to get them. And, and I think it's going to be tough to make those sort of guarantees. This isn't like a bribery case where, hey, you know, we've got somebody that, you know, we've got them on tape giving, you know, $50,000 to so and so. No, it's, it, this isn't that type of case. It's going to be fraught with political overtones. If you bring the charges, you gotta get them for sure. So, very glad to have you with us. Once again, we are scheduled to be joined by Republican gubernatorial candidate, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. She's fresh off her debate performance yesterday. I actually, I thought she did a very, very strong job, and um, we'll ask her a little bit about the debate, but a number of questions, including some stuff that wasn't covered during the course of the debate. It's always interesting to me, what gets some people's attention? And I never, ever, ever, ever necessarily thought that I'd be spending even three minutes, and we're not going to spend more than three or four minutes of the program, on Ben Affleck marrying Jennifer Lopez. But we are because of a very interesting twist on this. As you might have heard, that Ben Affleck and J-Lo, J. Lopez, they, they got married, you know, a, a couple weeks ago and this is you know this is again it, it's a return to well they, they were together before and now they're they're back uh, again um they were originally set to be married in 2003 that didn't work out so now they've got married okay well that that's all well and good and you wish the the couple you know great happiness i would hope here's where this has been controversial jennifer lopez has decided that she is going to take his name legally. So she's going to become Jennifer Affleck. Okay, you know, you got Ben Affleck, you got Jennifer Affleck. She said that, you know, from a professional standpoint, you know, when she's doing performances and stuff, she might still continue to bill herself as Jennifer Lopez. But for all intents and purposes, you know, legally, she is going to take her husband's name. Now, that's that's a decision 
that, you know, I think is very individual to, to different women. You know, in my life, my, my late wife, we, we met in law school. When we got married, she had started her professional career and she made the choice that she did not want to, to take my last name. So that, that was, that was, that was fine. And so, you know, she, she didn't. Um, Fran, my current wife, made the decision that she was going to take my name. So now it's Jeff and Fran Wagner. But it was an individual decision that people made based on different sort of circumstances. I bring this up because there was a piece in the New York Times over the weekend written by a woman named Jennifer um, Weiner, Weiner, who um, really rips Jennifer Lopez for making the decision to take her husband's name and you know for example um she's right true love wins except also oof ms affleck may be surrendering to the power of love with this her fourth marriage but given the cringy history behind the practice a woman taking her husband's last name feels to me like a submission a gesture that doesn't say i belong with him so much as quote i belong to him and at this fraught moment for feminism in america a woman like the former jennifer lopez declining to change her name feels especially deciding to change her name feels especially dispiriting i i i read this stuff and and i admit i, I get frustrated i i it's individual decisions, and the decisions that go into the decision that a woman's going to make, whether when she gets married, whether she wants to change her name, whether the couple wants to do a hyphenated thing, whatever it is, those are sort of individual decisions that are out there. But how preachy and entitled, if this is the feminist view that's out there, that Jennifer Lopez should feel guilty about deciding that she wants to adopt her husband's name when they've gotten married. I mean, who is it? who among us has the right to say that? And and candidly, if feminism, if if the roots of feminism are so fragile that a woman making the decision that she's going to take her husband's name risks bringing down that that whole framework, well, then it tells you that there's a house of cards. I mean, to me, it is an individual decision. And if she wants to keep her own name legally, that's fine. Wouldn't criticize it. Would certainly understand it. If she wants to take his name, that's between the two of them. And that's something that she had apparently decided to do in 2003 before the the thing fell apart and, and now she wants to do it but but who who is the new york times or guest essayists to say oh this is terrible for feminism how dare she adopt his name my response would be it's none of your darn business stick around live from the annex wealth management studios this is the jeff wagner show and now wtmj's jeff wagner good afternoon wisconsin welcome back as I've said before, I typically do, do not do newsmaker interviews. Some some show hosts do it, and that, that's fine. It, it's just not the nature of the program I run. But I do make exceptions from time to time, and we have a gubernatorial primary coming up two weeks from tomorrow, and it is my great pleasure to be joined in the studio by the former lieutenant governor of the state of Wisconsin and one of the leading candidates, if not the leading candidate for the Republican nomination, Rebecca Clayfish. Rebecca, good afternoon. I thought, Jeff, you were going to tell me that 
occasionally you make exceptions for former journalistic rivals. <laughs> that's, that's because right. you remember once upon a time, I was a news anchor for Channel 12, right. and you're here. And then you'll recall after I left my job and I was at home for some time, I actually did some work here. I, absolutely. At 620 WTMJ. And then what happened is you ended up getting like a real job, and you were the lieutenant governor <laughs> of the state was a, that of was a real job. <laughs> right. And it is what qualifies me and prepares me best to win this race, but then start us off on the right foot on day one, because I'm a proven and tested conservative reformer. I know what I'm doing, and I am confident in our plan to get Wisconsin back on track. I'm so sad by what Tony Evers has done to our state over the last three and a half years. I never imagined progress as fragile as it has been shown to be. And I am so eager to take back control and give it back to the people of this state. And I'm confident that that's what we're going to do. Um, you, you had the Republican gubernatorial debate last night. Um, your, your general reaction, how did you feel after it ended? I felt great. I think that there were good questions asked. There was good dialogue on the stage. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of people on Twitter this morning saying, well, geez, there weren't any tangles on stage last night. You know, I'm mad at Tony Evers, and I think that his flaws and his failures, his weak and failed leadership needs to be pointed out. And that's also why I'm the best candidate to take on Tony Evers this fall. And I think I also pointed out that I've been tested against this mob and this money before i have won statewide four separate times look at that guy on tv right behind you you see that monitor jeff no tony evers yeah tony evers in a big red truck that i'm sure he borrowed from someone because we all know that tony evers has never driven a truck in his life over the course of the next hour i've got a number of areas i want to talk to you about and just kind of explore things interestingly enough one of the i i I think one of the things that's in front of mind for Wisconsin voters is something that didn't come up on on the debate last night, and that's inflation in general and and high gas prices in particular. And I I understand that gas prices have gone down to $4.30 a gallon from 5 bucks, but that's certainly nothing to, to celebrate. High gas prices, what would you do if you were the governor? Well, first of all, I would never raise the gas tax. Both my primary opponent, Tim Michaels, and Tony Evers have taken the exact same position on this. They would index the gas tax to inflation. Well, inflation's at a 41-year high. Nobody can afford higher gas tax. I went this morning, and I've got a 2002 minivan, so it's not like I've got the world's best fuel efficiency, but I filled up this morning... $57 to fill up my gas tank, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening right now who are like, oh, that sounds like a really great bargain. I've got a truck, clearly like Tony Evers is pretending to have in that ad that he just played. But gas prices are on a tear, and it's not just gas prices. It's grocery prices. We know that the supply chain crisis and the worker crisis are contributing to the fact that Nothing is affordable in this state. And I blame Tony Evers and I blame Joe Biden for this hyperinflation that we are all facing. But I'll hold the line on gas tax. And unfortunately, you're not going to get the same thing from my opponents here. Would you be in favor of freezing the gas tax? Tony Evers came out and said he would be in favor of freezing the, the federal gas tax, but said nothing about Wisconsin's 32, 33 cent a gallon. Would that you be in favor was, of that? That was such a cheap political stunt, Jeff, and you and I both know that because he just basically threw the ball to the federal government and said hey you know biden this one's yours it's cheap 
it's what politicians do in election years. What Tony Evers should have done, what Tony Evers could have done, is gas tax. Holiday, when things were at their most painful at the pump. And I'm going to get wonky for a second here, but you know that all you have to do is get your state agencies to lapse back into the budget, and you can use that general purpose revenue to help save people the pain at the pump, at least for a little while. I mean, this summer, when we were hoping to get some tourism revenue back into Wisconsin's economic bloodstream, you're forcing people to make awful choices. I mean, there are people right now on fixed incomes who are choosing between filling up their gas tank or you know filling up their propane tank because of course Tony Evers is sitting there on the line five contract his DNR still has not done that permit and they're choosing well golly do I do I buy this or that do I buy medication do I buy groceries do I buy gas do I buy propane and that's a, a sad commentary on where our economy is today under Governor Tony Evers where do you stand on the minimum markup law I think the minimum markup law probably needs to be reformed. You remember when the minimum markup law, and I'm not suggesting you're this old, but uh, you know the history of the minimum markup <laughs> do, law. Yes. And you also, you know, I've seen the videos that I have done for this radio station on the minimum markup law. You know, when it was originally concocted, it was designed to protect your little mom and pop shop from the massive big box store and you wanted to make sure that the massive big box store could not come in undercut undersell a bunch of products and then thereby uh, run the mom and pop shop out of business and then become the only game in town essentially a monopoly well we know in modern times that it has a double edge on the sword and so it needs reform but when we reform it it's got to actually save people money not just end mom and pop shops ability to compete Rebecca let's talk about crime for a minute you have been very critical of Tony Evers response to what I'm gonna call the riots in Kenosha if you were the governor what would you have done differently than Tony Evers did? We would have made sure that the National Guard was out there right away. We would have surged state patrol to be there right away. We would have assured mutual aid right away. $50 million should never have gone up in smoke, Jeff. Two men should never have lost their lives. Tony Evers just pandered to the far fringes on the left, and in order to appease the perpetually offended, he stood down. Now, this was an instance in which Donald Trump made the right decision, but it took Congressman Brian Stile calling the switchboard at the White House in order to, to rally the type of support which Tony Evers initially refused. This just shows complete lack of leadership. He has no backbone. And the idea that this man is asking us for a contract extension after rising crime, 9% year over year, that's double the national rate. And it wasn't just Kenosha. It's also Milwaukee, where we're on track for another increase in our murder rate that is over and above last year's record-breaking increase. Murder rate in Green Bay is up 60%. There are now murders in the Wisconsin Dells resorts. La Crosse PD just had their biggest meth bust and their biggest fentanyl bust in PD history. You see the crime stats. It's not just about Tony Evers' weak and failed leadership. It is also about... John Chisholm's weak and failed leadership. Tony Evers is sitting on paperwork right now that would allow him to fire John Chisholm. 
I'll fire John Chisholm, and I'll fire him on day one. One of the frustrations that a lot of us have down here in Milwaukee is the out-of-control crime in general, but particularly out-of-control juvenile crime. You know, you'll have these stories about, you know, kids that will go out and steal two, three, four cars a day, and if they're caught, maybe it's a week in in some sort of detention, then they're back out on the streets. As the governor, what could you do, what would you do to address what I consider to be a juvenile juvenile crime crisis? is an epidemic and make no mistake about it i will sign both bail and sentencing reform to end not only this type of revolving door of criminal justice but not just for juvies also for adult offenders you imagine living as a cop today you go out there you arrest a bad guy you spend your time doing an investigation you refer it for charges and then the milwaukee county da actually charges only four out of 10 felony recommendations? How do you feel about your job? Do you feel like you're being appreciated? Do you feel like the work that you are producing every day is worth it? Or do you feel like you're being treated like dirt? You're not being respected, and the work that you are doing is not worth it. It's no wonder that people are retiring in droves and the recruit classes get smaller and smaller. Add that to the fact that Tony Evers sides with rioters instead of our good cops. There is a reason, Jeff, that I am law enforcement's choice for governor. I've been endorsed by the Wisconsin Fraternal Order of Police, more than half of Wisconsin's sheriffs, the Milwaukee Police Association, and the Kenosha Police Association Board. We need to do bail and sentencing reform to tie the hands of bad DAs and bad judges who just let the bad guys go right back out on the streets to recommit crimes. So as a follow-up to that, you would be in favor then of mandatory minimum penalties for a variety of crimes like felon possession or more serious offenses? That's exactly what we're talking about. Those are good examples of what we need mandatory minimums for. We're going to take a very quick break. Uh, Rebecca Clayfish is with us for the entire hour. We're going to be talking about taxes and Act 10 and election reform and all sorts of other stuff. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Is objective, subjective is subjective. And so it's very important to me that schools teach fact. That's Rebecca Clayfish from last night's debate. We have Rebecca Clayfish in the studio. Rebecca, let, let me talk about taxes. I thought it was interesting the debate last night. There was a question about taxes, and you were the only one of the three candidates that came out very specifically. It, at least initially, you said you'd be in favor of a of a 3.5%, 3.54 percent flat tax essentially where does that number come from and what would how would that work in the real world i thought you were going to lead into the segments talking about your lead-in soundbite me carping about the difference between objective and subjective (laughs) well this is objective policy and that comes from the very bottom line of a very progressive income tax system sadly Jeff, Wisconsin gave the world the progressive income tax in 1911. I like to say that we never would have done that had women just had the right to vote. Women would never have allowed that to happen. But sure enough, uh, Wisconsin did it, and we have one of the most progressive income taxes in America. And we're surrounded by states with lower income tax rates than we have. Iowa just went to a 3.9% flat tax. We've got to beat all of our surrounding states. 3.54 is the lowest tax bracket in our progressive income tax system. So what we would do is hold that lowest bracket harmless and then move everything
everybody else down to that lower bracket. It's really important we do that because we've got to keep our Generation Z workers here. We're competing with states all across the country for their affection, their attention, and yes, their work skills. And we've got a worker crisis, and out of that has been born a supply chain crisis, so we've got to keep them here. The way you keep them there is making sure they keep more of their own paychecks. And Generation Z, not out there buying houses and property. That's my kid's age. We've got to make sure that we retain our young workers in Wisconsin. 3.54% flat tax is going to beat all of our neighbors in the upper Midwest. And we're going to not stop. We'd like to continue to move toward income tax elimination in Wisconsin which is going to enable us to even better compete with states like Texas and Florida because, let's face it, Ron DeSantis, awesome governor, but his ice fishing is crap. <laughs> Retire, speaking of Florida, I mean, retirement income. Obviously, one of the problems is that people retire to a state, for example, like Florida, that doesn't have a state income tax, and so you, you do have a bit of that drain. Where are you on the retirement income issue? Don't move. Don't move to Florida because as soon as I am governor, we are going to eliminate the tax on retirement income. And as long as we're on the subject of income tax and retirement tax reform, I should add that Tony Evers vetoed the personal property tax uh, out of the budget. And what we need to do is actually stop taxing personal property. It's going to save small business owners $200 million. Under our administration, we will stop taxing personal property. That's going to allow small business owners to take that savings and farm it back into their companies, give their employees some raises or, you know, maybe bump up some benefits or health coverage. Because in this high inflation world where we're taxed enough already, we've got to find ways to allow employees to keep more of their own money so they stay in Wisconsin working for Wisconsin companies. Let's switch gears. I want to talk about one of the hot button social issues, which of course is abortion. Um, I know you are pro-life. Right now, Wisconsin is sort of, assuming that 1849 law is enforceable, is sort of of an abortion island in that um, surrounding states, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, all allow people to have abortions. So the effect is a woman in Wisconsin who wants to get an abortion can get one by traveling out of state. Would you support legislation as a compromise on this issue, similar to laws like they have in Mississippi or in Texas now, which would allow elective abortions within 14 or 15 weeks? I support the law that's on the books. Jeff, you know me, and you've known me pretty much my entire Mm -hmm. adult career, and I've always been pro-life. I celebrated when we saw the decision come down, knowing that the littlest, the meekest, the voiceless among us now would be protected. And babies can't afford lobbyists. It's people like me who stand up to protect the unborn. And so the law will stand, but I'm a woman. I'm a mom of two daughters. And it's very important to me that we speak about this issue with empathy, not sympathy, empathy that I can give as as a woman, as somebody who's actually been pregnant, as somebody who takes pregnancy tests on occasion. You know, we we need to make sure that we're treating people who have unexpected pregnancies with compassion and surround them with the resources they need in order to live full lives. Democrats try and push this myth 
on women like me, on women like my daughters will be, it says basically you have to choose. You have to choose between the life of your child and your own success. You don't have to choose. Look at me. I've chosen both. And women have been doing it for generations. You can have children and be successful in America. That is one of the greatest gifts of freedom. And in a Clayfish administration, that is what women will have in our state, is the choice and the opportunity to live successful lives because we're going to surround women with the resources they need to be successful. Being pro-life means being pro-baby and pro-mom. So just so I'm clear, you would not be in favor of, as a compromise on this issue, a law which would allow elective abortions within 14 or 15 or 16 weeks? We already have on the books a law that allows the exception for the life of the right. mother. Right. Good enough. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Rebecca Clayfish in just a moment. Being pro-life means being pro-woman and pro-baby. And as governor, I'm going to make sure that we treat new moms with unexpected pregnancies with empathy and compassion and get them the resources they need. Rebecca, I, I thought actually one of the highlights of the debate was, as a follow-up to that, you made it very clear you were questioned about ectopic pregnancies and things of the like, and you said, look, that, that, that's not abortion. We're not talking about that. No. No, I, you must have heard a soundbite. I don't have earphones. Right. And so, no, I and I know that there have been stories over the last couple of weeks about and I don't know whether they're right or wrong or this is just, you know, the Internet making stuff up to scare people. But what I can tell you is in Wisconsin, miscarriage treatment, ectopic pregnancy treatment are not abortions. It is abortion that is illegal. We want to protect unborn babies, but we also want to protect moms. And for goodness sakes, who in the world in medical science would ever think that miscarriage treatment or ectopic pregnancy treatment is abortion? It is clearly not. And I'm never going to change my mind or change my position on contraception. Contraception is legal in Wisconsin. Let's switch gears. Um, obviously, as a matter of fact, one of the Republican candidates, his, his, the, the, base, the whole premise of the campaign is based on decertifying the, the 2020 election, which most reasonable people recognize cannot be done. Um, but let, let's start off. You've used a phrase that you think that the 2020 election may have been rigged. What, what exactly do you mean when you say rigged? What I mean by that, and I'm glad that we have long-form radio right now because I have presented evidence, and it's out there for the public. In 2020, the WEC, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, booted the Green Party candidate off the presidential election ballot. You recall one time in your entire adult life, Jeff, that the Green Party candidate and the Libertarian Party candidate weren't right there alongside the Republican and the Democrat. Everybody knows that in modern elections, the Green Party candidate usually peels votes off the Democrat and Libertarian usually peels votes off of the Republican. Well, in 2016, Jill Stein, who was the Green Party presidential candidate then in Wisconsin, got 30,000 votes. Right. So if the WEC boots the Green Party candidate off of the presidential election ballot in 2020 and in 2016, that candidate got 30,000 votes. We can only imagine they would at least get 30,000 votes this time. And without that candidate being there, but with the others being on the ballot, 
seems to me like this was rigged from the start. Like there was no way to recover. And now think by how many votes did Joe Biden declare victory in Wisconsin? 21,000 or so? Yeah. Less than 30,000. And so when people ask for evidence of why I feel like this, the fix was in, this is why. And then you add to that the fact that the WEC has been completely lawless. I'm the only candidate in this race who has sued the WEC for their lawlessness. That's why I'm going to just outright acknowledge the fact that this agency was a mistake. We've got to abolish the WEC. We're going to stop the ballot drop boxes. We're going to stop doing ballot harvesting, period, in the state of Wisconsin. We're not going to allow third parties to play and pay for elections. That means no more of these Zuckerbergs. Well, let me stop you, because some people people might argue, Rebecca, why? If you've got an, an outside party that's willing to come in and put in millions of dollars to help generate voter turnout and and give it to different municipalities, why shouldn't they do that? Because that's not the job of government. Government doesn't run get-out-the-vote campaigns. They shouldn't. That's what political parties do. That's what candidates do. And when you accept money from someone else, that money will always come with strings attached. Jeff, you and I both know that even the federal government only gives states money with strings attached. We got to sever the strings, the relationship, period, and all together. No third parties should pay for play in our elections. No Zuckerbucks when I am governor. I'm proud of those counties that have now gone county by county, passing ordinances across the state, outlawing it from within their own counties. But additionally, we can't have any more central counts. That leads to these ballot dumps that are big surprises for people who are watching election returns on TV. And I go one step further and say we're going to create this Office of Election Integrity underneath the umbrella of the Department of Justice. And we're going to repurpose some of our forensic auditors who are already there to work on election security. And we're going to put that office in charge of finally purging the voter rolls. No more dead voters. No more People registered 300 to an empty lot. And we're also going to put that up online all day, every day for people to see. Do you know there have been some citizen journalists over the last couple of years who've tried to get that information from the WEC? You know, WEC charges $12,500 for that. Hmm. Taxpayers already pay for this stuff. Let me ask you about decertifying the election. That's one of the ideas that's been floated, that there's all these problems with the 2020 election, and what we need to do is have the state decertify it. What do you think about that? You can't do it. You can't do it. There's there's no constitutional way. There is no articulated way through state statute to do it. I mean, talk to any constitutional attorney. And I I think there have been a number of investigations sponsored by the state, sponsored by others, sponsored by, you know, third party and private groups, citizen journalists. And no one has come up with a clear, articulated strategy to make this happen. It's not possible. This election is going to come down to who do you trust? And I am a proven, tested, trusted conservative reformer. That's Rebecca Clayfish from the debate last night. Um, Rebecca, let, let's talk a little bit about education. Um, I, I know you are a big advocate of breaking up the Milwaukee public school system into a, a series of smaller units, four, eight, whatever that number would be. 
Why do you think that's a good idea? We've tried everything else. Jeff, you've been around Milwaukee journalism for years, same as I have. We've tried everything. It doesn't work. Throwing more money at the problem doesn't work. Involving the mayor doesn't work. Doing a, a separate district doesn't work. We need to do the one thing that nobody has had the backbone to actually do, and that's break it up. I'm sad to say that, you know, if you have a school district of 70,000 kids, you know, no superintendent can memorize the names of 70,000 kids. If they're at risk of failing or not graduating, go to their classroom, sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, or, you know, more intervention still, you know, go to their homes and sit down with their parents. 70,000 children, 70,000 lives, future leaders, and sadly, Nobody's giving them individual attention and parents are unable to hold that system accountable because you've got teachers union bosses who are running the game and Tony Evers just panders to them. I mean, you saw those open records requested emails when he was just shutting down schools arbitrarily listening to the teachers union bosses. You know, a lot of us thought, OK, well, Act 10 is maybe going to be the, the end of their reign. And it clearly has not been because Tony Evers locked children out of their classrooms in many cases for two straight years. My children were two of those kids locked out of their own classrooms, forced to sit there in homeschool on their beds with their Chromebooks, hooked up to their cell phones as hotspots because we still don't have rural broadband. Thanks a lot, Tony Evers. That's sarcasm. But sorry, nobody can see me rolling my eyes on the radio. But, you know, this is something that I'm very passionate about because he did it to me and my girls. He did it to my kids. And had I not been there, you know, listening from the doorways of each of these children, you know, how would I know some of the garbage that was coming through the computer screen? What about the moms who don't have the the time to, to sit there and, and listen? Or, you know, what about the moms who don't know how to help with homework? This is what our children were faced with. And now we have two years of learning loss and a governor in Tony Evers who conceals the failures of the last couple of years by rigging the state's grade cards. Jeff, 8% of black kids across Wisconsin test at grade level for math. That is a failure. He should be hanging his head in shame. And yet... He turns around and asks all of us for a contract extension. Well, this mom says, heck no, no way. And not only that, but we need to make sure we're doing universal school choice. So parents are put back in charge and your education dollars are actually going to follow a child's education and not flow as they do now to buildings and bureaucrats and you know electricity bills. We've got to get parents back in charge so we can prioritize kids again in this state. We've got to raise standards. Tony Evers <laughs> vetoed a literacy intervention bill. The former state superintendent of public schools, he vetoed a bill that would help start a school in the Northwoods to help children with disabilities. This is the guy who calls himself the education governor. And now on top of all of this, we have an epidemic of anxiety and depression among our children. In 20 years, we're going to look back on this moment and we're going to say, what the heck did we do to our children? And on top of that, trying to force children to get the COVID-19 vaccine and the masking of kids, 
uh, the forced masking, the contact quarantines that were absolutely endless. There are some school districts that wouldn't let their kids participate in interscholastic sports. This is all on Tony Evers. And I'm just, you know, a mom like the rest of the moms across the state who are really angry about it. I just have the opportunity to join forces with those other moms and get stuff done right now. So in, in retrospect, if you were the governor, would you have shut down the state because of COVID in the fashion that Evers did? No, I would not have shut down the state. And what we know today is that this is an endemic situation, something I warned of very, very early on. You know, in the first couple of weeks, I think people maybe didn't know, you know, and, and science was, was quite behind. And it seemed like a, a deadly, devastating, you know, black death sweeping across the country. But what we know in hindsight is that we not only overdid it, but we did serious and long-lasting damage to children because of what we did. Look at the stats right now. They're pretty much the same as what they were last summer. And yet, you know, nobody is going nuts today. People are going about their lives because they're treating it as the endemic situation that it is. Tony Evers turned the WEDC, the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, from an economic development agency and to a judgment agency that pointed at people and said, you're essential and you're non-essential in Wisconsin's economy. Then he just shut the world down. The legislature had to sue him to get the world opened back up. It was outrageous. That's why I'll ban mask mandates. I'll ban these COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'm for medical freedom in Wisconsin. And I also think we can use that medical freedom status to turn Wisconsin into a workforce destination for people. People who want to come to work in a free state can come to work in Wisconsin. People who want to come and have government take less money out of their paycheck can come to a state like Wisconsin. Rebecca, in the minute or two that we have left, uh, the, the primary election <clears throat> is two weeks from tomorrow. Early voting, I believe, opens this week, maybe as soon as tomorrow. Why should people be voting for you as opposed to the, the other Republican challengers? I'm a proven, tested, conservative reformer. Jeff, if this comes down to who do you trust, then I'm the one who actually has a record. I've made promises and I've kept them. If you look at what I have actually done, we've saved the taxpayers of Wisconsin $15 billion on Act 10 alone. We defunded Planned Parenthood of all state dollars, shut down five Planned Parenthood clinics. We passed concealed carry, castle doctrine, right to work, photo ID. We did prevailing wage reform. We expanded school choice across this state. All of these things are part of my record. If the best indication of what you will do in the future is what you've done in the past, then I ask you to check out my record. Look at what I have done in the past. Because when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Rebecca Clayfish, Republican candidate for governor. Thanks for spending me an hour with me this afternoon. I'm, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk again sometime in the future. I have no doubt, Jeff. Thank you. I ask for your vote, all of you, and you, Jeff, August 9th. <laughs>